0: Listener supported, WNYC Studios.
1: This is Beverly Hills now, okay? (laughs) I mean, just the cost of living here is just ridiculous. Used to be nothing but a swamp when we were kids, and I look at it now, God.
0: This is not just a crisis of affordable and accessible housing. This is also a crisis
2: of displacement and eviction.
3: So this is a couple of businessmen brothers that are also like known vulture landlords in this neighborhood, so we wanted to bring attention to that as well.
1: If you think you might be a gentrifier, don't move into a neighborhood and then complain about the way that it is, you know, and shop at the local grocery store and don't get upset because you can't buy this kind of coffee or, you know, can't visit an art gallery. You know, Los
3: Angeles is a city that is kind of rooted in history and rooted in its communities. And if you uproot those communities and you uproot those people, you're tearing out the heart of Los Angeles. There
0: goes the neighborhood. There goes the neighborhood. There goes
1: the neighborhood. neighborhood. Tenants, now, uniting on the ground. Fight gentrification. Keep your family in your house.
2: Anna, where are we? We are in the Venice Beach neighborhood on a Saturday morning. The voices you hear belong to about two dozen people dressed in matching red T-shirts.
3: My name is Betty Madin, and we are marching with the L.A. Tenants Union, and we're marching against landlord harassment. We have right.
2: This is Days of Rage, a series of demonstrations by the L.A. Tenants Union.
0: We have a, uh, a route planned. We're going to go up here, turn left and go
2: down towards the beach. Instead of just waiting for, say, the city council to come up with a way to bring down housing costs, groups like the Tenants Union are out organizing.
0: What we're doing right here is the beginning, I believe, of the end of gentrification.
2: Their solution to high housing costs starts with letting people know they're mad as hell. They're out protesting. And pressuring landlords.
3: This is the third time that this same letter has been given to the owners. The letter is simply stating that the residents of the building formed the Tenants Association. And
2: as such, like these demonstrators, a lot of people in L.A. just want exorbitant rents, evictions, and displacements to stop. But how do you solve a housing crisis? That is what this episode is about.
3: Our city is not for sale.
0: I'm Sol Gonzalez, and this is There Goes the Neighborhood LA. This is our final episode of the season, and we're going to use it to solve LA's housing and gentrification crisis once and for all. All right, not really, but we will look at remedies, or at least partial remedies.
2: Now, if this problem were easy to solve, it wouldn't be a problem, right? None of the ideas out there are perfect. Some of them may not be popular, and many of them could even create other problems.
0: You'll hear about a lot of different ideas in this episode. So to help you keep track, every time we introduce a solution, you'll hear this.
2: It's cute. It's like a cartoon light bulb.
0: It's adorable. Now let's go back to that days of rage protest on behalf of renters. Anna, what are those demonstrators and their allies fighting for exactly? What do they want to see happen?
2: Well, renters make up about half of L.A. households. That's a huge number, millions of people. The Tenants Union wants to harness all those people to fight for rights for tenants. And a big focus for them is trying to preserve and expand rent control departments. That's one of their proposed solutions to the housing crisis. Hey, a solution! That's great. But how does rent control help things? Well, groups like the Tenants Union see rent control departments as one of our best sources of affordable housing. In these units, rent increases are limited to 3% a year. So if you live in one long enough, you end up with a great deal. In LA, though, only apartments built before 1978 are rent controlled, with a small number of exceptions.
0: So why can't the city council just apply rent control to new places that are built?
2: Well, it's not so easy. They can't because of a state law called Costa Hawkins, which prevents cities in California from making their own rules to expand rent control. But if you repealed Costa-Hawkins, L.A. could do a lot more on that front. And that's just one example of how changing state laws could help renters.
0: And expanding rent control and strengthening tenants' rights could also be problematic. (laughs) What's that noise? We've got a sound for problems, too, Anna. Expanding rent control gets a happy ding for being a remedy, but it also gets that sad sound because a lot of people don't see rent control as a solution at all. Some housing experts and economists, even liberal ones, argue it makes the housing situation worse. They say rent control takes away the incentive to build new apartments because investors know their incomes will be capped. They also argue rent control discourages landlords from maintaining existing apartment buildings. Here's Richard Green, the director of USC's Lusk Center for Real Estate. What you have is buildings falling down. And so we have this weird phenomenon of there's a very expensive real estate market. If you go out in the San Fernando Valley and look at the garden apartments that were built in the 50s, a lot of them are in really terrible shape and ultimately may be removed from the stock because they haven't been maintained. People shouldn't be living in them. And so you make the supply condition worse instead of better.
2: Okay, so rent control is not a panacea, but at the moment it's the only reason hundreds of thousands of people in Los Angeles can afford their homes.
0: There are lots of other ideas about how to help renters, and we'll come back to that in a bit. But let's shift gears and talk about people who want that American dream of buying their own home. Obviously, that's really tough for lots of people to do in the LA area, where the median price of a home is now $575,000. Anna, you know about that.
2: Yes. My husband and I have been looking to buy a house for several months now, and it's crazy. Everything we've bid on has gone for way over asking, like $100,000 more. I knew it was an expensive market. Obviously, I report on it, but I was not prepared for this. So we're actually putting that on hold for right now.
0: A few years back, the city of L.A. tried to make it easier to build affordable single-family homes in the city. Here comes a solution. The idea was if you build houses that aren't really big and fancy, it gives more people a shot at home ownership. So in 2005, the city changed its zoning rules. The new rules allowed multiple detached residences like townhomes to be built in places that used to just allow bigger single-family houses. A guy named Brian Brislin knows about this. Where are we going right now, by the way? So we're going towards the east end of Echo Park, which in this current economic cycle has really started to blossom. I'm riding shotgun in a Jaguar sedan Bryant is driving on Sunset Boulevard. What is it that you do exactly? What's the simplest way to describe it? I identify land for future housing developments. Bryant specializes in small lot developments. They're these tightly packed townhouse projects that kind of look like stacks of Legos. And they're usually built on small parcels of land. Brian says they're especially appealing to younger buyers who don't want to live in the burbs.
3: So I feel in the last cycle, in the 2000s, You saw a lot more people moving to Santa Clarita, Valencia, Palmdale, Lancaster. And now in this cycle, in this
0: economic cycle over the last seven, eight years, I feel like people are like, well, I'd rather have that extra hour, hour and a half I'd be driving at night to do yoga or to be with my kids or do CrossFit or crafts or shop for, you know, organic produce, etc. These are people who want to be urban dwellers. Yes. But here's one big problem with small lot homes. These houses that were supposed to be more affordable really aren't. This is a model home, so it's, got, it's staged with furniture. It has a uh, new home smell to it. It does. It's got a new I went to an open to house so. for a new small lot development called Kovo in L.A.'s Silver Lake neighborhood. Where two single-family homes once stood, there are now 10 townhouses, each three stories tall and separated by six inches of airspace. Real estate agent Mark Mullen gave me the tour of one house, including its third-floor living room with an outdoor deck. Can I assume this is really the spot— that sells the place.
1: It is. It's the, it's, it is. it's the money shot. It's the dramatic moment. When we walk people up here, they've seen all the sort of practical features of the home, and then you come up here and you go, this is the way I want to live. This is where I'm going to spend my time.
0: And remind me, how much are these going for?
1: At Cova, you're spending a minimum of $1,050,000 to purchase a home. That was our least expensive home, and it topped out at about a million two. So...
0: You acknowledge this is not housing for working-class It is not. It is not. Tracy Doe, Mark's boss, says if you're looking for a culprit for why this affordable housing option became so unaffordable, blame the real estate market.
3: That's your question is, why aren't these priced at 500000 They can be priced at 500000 but the demand is such, and the people willing to pay a certain price for them will push the prices up to where... They are now, you know, the market prices, because this is what somebody's willing to pay.
0: So you're saying, you know, in a sense, we're shackled to the market.
3: That's it. That's what the market is saying.
0: There's another problem with small lot homes. Building them often means existing housing gets bought up and torn down. And that has sparked a backlash against small lot development. At this protest in Hollywood, Housing activists are attaching balloons to an apartment building.
1: I am blowing up balloons um, to put bouquets of balloons on um, housing that is slated for demolition to make way for luxury housing in Los Angeles.
0: Artist Ann Harz came up with the idea after being inspired by the movie Up. You know, the film where the elderly man ties balloons to his house after all the other houses around it are torn down and replaced by skyscrapers. Tell your boss he can have our house. Really? When I'm dead. Anne drives all over the city to protest small lot developments. How many times have you done this?
3: 10, 15 times now. I'm not even sure.
1: (laughs) We've lost count.
0: So you want people to look at the balloons and recognize that, as you see it, a violation happened here.
1: Absolutely. Can you just take a look at this real quick, Ann? Sure.
0: Jennifer Gray is here to help Ann with her protest. Jennifer used to live in a $500 a month rental cottage in the San Fernando Valley. But it was sold as part of a small lot development deal and replaced by 26 units selling for $800,000 a piece. And Jennifer got displaced.
2: And I've got nowhere to
0: live now. And when you say nowhere to live, is that just poetic license or literally
2: nowhere to live? Literally, life is packed up in a storage unit and I'm floating around
0: Couch surfing and
2: are yeah in the car or? no not it's not there yet no I'm, I mean I've got friends and couches and family and everybody's uh, doing what they can you know.
0: Coming up building, building and more building. When you talk to experts about LA's housing crisis, the one big idea that keeps coming up again and again is that we just need to build a hell of a lot more housing.
2: Yeah, you heard about this in episode one. For decades, California, including Los Angeles, hasn't built enough housing to accommodate its population.
0: Now the city of LA does have a target, building 100,000 units of housing over eight years. That's over 12,000 new homes a year. But Brent Gaysford, the director of the activist group Abundant Housing L.A., says those goals are small ball. If we just want to keep rents flat, we need about double that. We need 25 to 30,000 units a year. And that's just to tread water. That's just to tread water, exactly. So that 100,000 units is really a continuation of the status quo. It's not the change we need if this problem is going to get better. It's continuing to dig ourselves into the hole. What's a figure you would put on the table and say, that's the target we have to reach? If I had to pick a number, I would say... 25,000 units a year double that's probably not going to make the rent go down that'll probably keep it where it is which is unaffordable to a lot of people right but if we if we can keep the rent where it is and hopefully incomes will start to rise the problem can start to get a little better for some folks i would love to see us build 30,000 units a year um but let's start somewhere
2: Of course, if developers could build 30,000 units a year, they would. They can't for many reasons, including community opposition, environmental restrictions, and parking requirements that tack on big costs. Small lot development, those townhouses we just talked about, were one idea for making it easier to build and wedging more houses into central L.A. Here's another one.
0: Yeah, trains. Many planners say it's a no-brainer to put a lot of housing close to L.A.'s expanding system of light rail.
3: I think our stations can be um, ground zero for seeing how great compact urban design works and how you can have a lifestyle with other mobility options besides getting in your car.
0: That's Jenna Hornstock with Metro, L.A. County's transportation agency. It's her job to get market rate and affordable housing built near L.A.'s rail stations. And why does Metro care about this? Its job is to get people from point A to point B after all, not house them. Well, Jen is pretty candid about one answer. It's in Metro's self-interest.
3: We want people to take public transit. So if you locate their live, work, and play at transit, near transit, they're more likely to use transit. So for us, it's it's ridership, right? That's the barest connection, like the most base connection to having real estate development uh, on our property. Next stop is Culver City Station.
1: Connect here with Metro, Culver City, and Santa Monica eight Blue Buses.
0: Metro has overseen the completion of 17 projects with a housing component near train stops. And it has more than a dozen others under construction or on the drawing boards. But of course, there's a problem. Housing experts say public transit often makes existing homes along the rail routes more expensive. Because the the value of that land is increasing, and thus it's putting a target on all the existing affordable housing. Larry Gross is the executive director of the Coalition for Economic Survival. It's a housing advocacy group that's closely watched development and investment along the rail routes, both those that are already open and those getting built. Well, it's just developers who are buying up the land now and just sitting on it, waiting for the value of that land to increase as the stations are built in that area. And and you see that now? Yeah, there's sort of a tidal wave on the horizon, as soon as those stations are going to be built, they're going to be pushed out because they're then going to see the opportunity to cash in on building this luxury units next to to these stations. I brought Larry's worries up with Jenna Hornstock back at Metro.
3: We've committed on our land that 35% of the units built on Metro-owned land will be affordable, to low-income families. So with the land that we can control, we're saying we're making a commitment to affordable housing. And that commitment is made in spite of how challenging it is to have enough public subsidy to do it all. So it stands to us to figure out with our city partners how to make that happen. Please
2: stand
1: clear. The doors are
2: closing. That concern about new housing projects at train stops driving up prices, that applies to lots of new developments. Many people push back against the idea that we need to build more because what they see getting built right now isn't making things cheaper. In fact, it's often doing the opposite. Here's Damian Goodman, a political consultant and executive director of the Crenshaw Subway Coalition. That's a residence group formed to influence how a new train line going through South L.A. gets built.
0: Even though many of these projects don't require any type of teardown, just the imposition of them given their scale and the fact that it'll be priced out well outside the level affordable to local uh, residents, unleashes a wave of gentrification.
2: He's studied five of the biggest projects planned for Los Angeles right now. He agrees they'd add a lot of new housing, but says they'll also displace a lot of African-American and Latino residents.
0: Almost all of these projects are nearly 100 percent market rate. And market rate, as we say in our meetings, means not for us. And so... When you get into the question of gentrification and the concerns of community, it's not difficult um, to understand why most people, the cry is, yeah, you can build, but don't displace.
2: Damien and others would like to see more affordable housing being built, for one thing. But that's really difficult, too. There's no steady source of public money for it. So given how expensive it is to build in L.A., it's not worth it to most developers.
0: And city and state leaders know we need more affordable housing.
2: Right. And they have some things in the works. Mayor Eric Garcetti has proposed a new fee on developers to fund affordable projects. Los Angeles voters passed a new tax measure to fund homeless housing last year. And the state in recent years passed laws to create new rent-controlled housing.
0: There are also some really pie-in-the-sky ideas out there. Here's one. Get employers to build housing for their employees especially in pricier communities where essential workers like teachers and police officers simply can't afford to live. That's a really big deal here in the city of Santa Monica, where our studios are located. KCRW's Frances Anderton joins me to talk about that. She's the host of our weekly program, DNA, or Design and Architecture, and has followed L.A. urban planning for years. Hey, Frances.
1: Hey Sol, yes, so here we are in Santa Monica, this lovely beach town with lots of jobs. But here you'll find the median home price is $1.4 million. And the average rent for one bedroom, well, it's around $3,600. Folks in the workforce, like, say, teachers, are especially affected by this lack of affordable places to live. Listen to this.
2: Uh, I generally wake up at around four o'clock and I am out the door by five. I grab coffee every morning. I take it in a to-go mug and uh, head out the door. I generally eat breakfast when I get to work at around around 6 or so, 6.15-ish.
1: That's Hilary Weissman. She's an assistant principal in the Santa Monica Malibu School District. She lives in Long Beach, so her daily commute is almost 100 miles round trip. I will stay
2: as long as I can on campus to watch sporting events, to go to our plays or our, our theatrical productions, or go to some music, so that my day generally ends at around seven or so, maybe eight. Football nights are normally nine thirty. That makes my drive and preserves my sanity to maybe around an hour and fifteen minutes. If I leave school anywhere between four and six, I'm looking at near, you know, two and a half hour to three hour commute home.
0: It's like Hillary has this daily Lewis and Clark expedition just to get to work.
1: I know, Sol, it really sounds awful. In fact, she talks about even getting a cot to sleep in in her office.
0: And a lot of Southern Californians can totally relate to that. They work one place but live someplace else really far away because it's what they can afford.
1: That's absolutely right, Sol. And in fact, there's even a name for this. It's called the jobs-housing imbalance. Now, let's go back to Santa Monica. This is a city of around 94,000 people. But by day, that population jumps to an estimated 250,000. Now, this isn't all workers. Some are tourists. But an estimated four out of five people who work in Santa Monica do not live there
0: and i'm one of them francis and i see these people crawling along the 10 freeway with me every
1: day so to try and fix this problem for teachers it turns out that santa monica malibu school district has a big idea and that's to try and create housing listen to district chief operations officer kerry upton
0: we've begun considering how we might actually help support our teachers our staff members by providing housing closer someplace in Santa Monica. This would be workplace housing, so it's not that we would be providing free housing, but we would help provide them something that they could afford within the budgets and the salaries that we are able to pay. This is all really speculative, so let's put a problem noise here. And I mean, it's hard enough getting healthcare coverage from employers, right? Much less a place to live.
1: Yes. I mean, there's no shovels in the ground yet. This is at a very early stage. But as I understand it, it is possible for the school district to actually consider doing it because they already own some land. Other cities have done it on a small scale. Los Angeles Unified School District, for example, has built a couple of apartment buildings for its staff. You
0: know what this reminds me of? It's that classic early 20th century company town model.
1: You're absolutely right. It's not a new idea. Back in the day, the movie studios built housing close by for their employees. And in Santa Monica, in fact, workers at Douglas Aircraft, now Santa Monica Airport, lived in houses built for them. Now, that neighbourhood has since become one of the most expensive areas in the Southland.
0: Thanks, Francis. Great to talk to you, Sol. There are all kinds of other housing solutions we didn't even get into, like community land trusts. That's when a nonprofit buys property to keep it out of the private market. Then the nonprofit builds housing on it and sells only the houses but not the land for a cheaper cost.
2: Another idea, distributing more Section 8 vouchers, which subsidize the cost of rent for low-income people.
0: Others want to see bigger investments in public housing and opening up public housing projects to people earning a wider range of incomes.
2: Then there's the idea of providing people with a guaranteed basic income. Everybody, no matter what their income, working or not, would get a minimum paycheck that they could use for essentials like housing. So many solutions.
0: Listeners, we know you have solutions, too. You've posted them on our Facebook page. KCRW's Caitlin Schamberg, who does our social media, talked to some of you.
1: My name is Katie Adams, and I live in Boyle Heights. My immediate thought is find a path for people who have been renting to be able to buy, because I truly believe that when people go from renters to homeowners, they have a much more invested interest in the neighborhood, and they're much more likely to stay put and be active in the neighborhood and Basically, have an emotional attachment and loyalty to the neighborhood that only brings up the entire neighborhood. It only helps the neighborhood when people feel invested in it.
3: My name is Carl Fearman, and I live in uh, Lemur Park. Seriously,
0: the first solution I have to the housing crisis, I think everybody has to accept the fact that we need more housing, and that means we need it in our neighborhoods. And especially around like, places like Wilshire or, you know, transit corridors, like where I live, it seems like those would be ideal places to have very dense housing. Of course, traffic will get worse, but hopefully people will get out of their cars and um, use the transit.
3: My name is Mark Andrada.
0: I am a resident of Pico Union. Zoning laws that might need to be looked at and possibly restructured.
1: To be able to allow for more development of affordable housing as opposed to high-end condominiums and properties and such in really largely condensed areas of la my name is sarah and i live in san francisco my ideal vision would be to get rid entirely of rent control but if that's not politically possible at the very least to amend it so that rent control is not tied to the year of the building, but to the income of the person renting.
0: My name is Duff Wilmot and I'm uh, from Belfar, California. The solutions are self-evident, it's just a function of whether leadership decides to take hold of the legislative reins has been given. As we said, this is our last show of the season. But we're not walking away from coverage of housing and gentrification issues in L.A. and the rest of the country. They're simply too important to ignore. So stay tuned. We also want to continue the conversation with you online at our There Goes the Neighborhood Facebook group. There Goes the Neighborhood's reporter is Anna Scott. Our producer is Miguel Contreras. Celeste Wesson is our editor. Sonia Geis is our managing editor. Our recording engineers are Ray Guarna and J.C. Swadek. At WNYC Studios, our producer is Paige Cowett. Our executive producer is Karen Frillman. And Casey Means is our technical director. This episode was mixed by Bill Moss. Our composer is Hannes Brown, with additional music by Terrence Blanchard. I'm Saul Gonzalez. This series is supported by the Conrad N. Hilton Foundation. Thanks for listening.